know that the whole of history will be seen universally as his story. Who do I mean by him? Well, we would call the author God, the creator. For those of us here who are Christians, we'd have some other names for him as well, I guess. We'd call him uh, Father or Saviour or Jesus or uh, maybe other intimate phrases like uh, names like friend even, as if he's almost like a peer to us. And as, a, as Christians, we, we revel in those, those things. We revel in the intimacy that God uh, comes close to us. You know, that's really important. Oh no, we never take away from that. We must always revel in that. But at the same time, it's really good often to step back a bit and also remember to view God in widescreen. Okay, God as what? As God as the author of the whole of history. Because actually, when we do that, we remember something that might seem incredibly commonplace to us, but is very controversial in our day and age. Because when we talk like that and we address God like that, what we are asserting is that there is an order to things. You realize that? You talk about the author of history, there's an order to things. That things are coming from somewhere and going to somewhere. That there is a purpose and there's a meaning to life, the universe, and everything. We're saying this is not random. This is not chaos. This is not accident. We talk of God as author of history. We're saying you are not an accident. No, because in this author's story, that you, each person here, has a place. And uh, you're called to participate in the story and actively take your place in moving the story to its conclusion. I heard a, a scientist at a lecture lately, and he said, uh, he said this. He described all human life as, uh, I'll quote from him, uh, human life is a hiccup on the way from one oblivion to another oblivion. Wait, fist pumping. He must have a lot of fun. (laughs) Human life was a hiccup on the way from one oblivion to another oblivion. And I don't think many people would phrase it exactly like that, but actually that's increasingly the way that people live. And and that's the way that people think. This is, well, it's it's nothing. It will be gone soon. It was gone before. It has no purpose. The Bible completely disagrees. That's a woo, (laughs) I think. It betrays life and our lives as well as as kind of vital and these complexly interlocking parts of this great story that God is concluding. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to wrap us up again in the story, okay? I want it to to shift our perspective. Because even what I've said up to there, for those of you who would have been a Christian for any length of time, that's not new. It's not like, whoa, really? There's order to the universe. I never knew that. If you're a Christian, that kind of goes with the territory, doesn't it? But these things are often so far at the back of our mind, and we so often need to plonk them back in the front of our mind. (laughs) And that's what I want to do uh, this morning. As I do that, I'd like to explore also how we can play our part in bringing this story to its uh, glorious conclusion. And how I want to do that is uh, by looking at an episode in the big story, in the story of history, that I reckon, this isn't kind of God's word for you here, but this is my guess, that when we get to the end of the story, this episode here will be one of the ten most significant things to happen in the entire story. (laughs) I've just picked ten because it's a round number. I'm just saying this is one of the biggies, okay? It's found in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 31. If you've got a Bible, uh, turn to that. The stuff's going to appear there, but I know it's quite bright in here, so you'll get some of it, those who are particularly beady-eyed. But it's Acts 9, 1 to 31. We're going through Acts, the book of Acts as a church at the moment, uh, the story of the early church, and we found ourselves here. And as I say, this is 
this is huge, <laughs> what we see today. Okay, let's start in verse 1. I'm going to read a little bit, then move uh, and explain a bit, read a little bit, explain a bit, and show you what I mean uh, by what I've said so far. Right, verse 1, let's go with this. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Stop there. So it would appear we have the villain of the piece. That's what it seems like from his introduction in this passage, a guy called Saul. But this is not his first introduction in the book of Acts. He sneaked in a chapter before. So I think we need to pick up a little bit on him. First thing to say about him, which I need to get out of the way early because I'm just aware that I, I won't be able to change this <laughs> in how I communicate. Saul, confusingly, has two names, okay? Sometimes he's called Saul, sometimes he's called Paul, okay? Some think that he changed his name when he became a Christian. Ooh, spoiler. Uh, anyway, sorry. Um, <laughs> but that's actually not, doesn't seem to be the case. He just is sometimes called Saul and Paul, and sometimes he's called Saul and Paul. And because I don't really have much discipline, I'm just going to interchange randomly during the talk and call him Saul sometimes and Paul sometimes because that's what the Bible does. Okay, so just bear with me. Whenever I mention it, either of those names, I'm talking about the same person. Okay, now let's introduce him as Acts introduces him, though, by wheeling back a chapter. He's introduced in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And you might think this is a bad start for Paul in, uh, in here, breathing out murderous threats. Uh, it's not as bad as how he's introduced in the book of Acts. Okay, uh, It's a story you would have come across a few weeks ago if you'd been with us, but um, one of the most beloved uh, leaders in the early church, a guy called Stephen, uh, is killed. And if you know the account, it looks, I've read it, that he's arrested and executed. Uh, That's how it looks. It's not that. He's lynched and murdered by a mob. That's what happens. They had no jurisdictional right to do that sort of thing. And at the end, it's portrayed a horrible thing. It's like the the crowd gets so angry, whipped up into this frenzy, that it's like like a bunch of wild animals set on him, just smash his skull in with rocks. It's hideous, okay? This is what it says about Saul. This is his introduction to us from Luke. Acts 8, verse 1. So picture here, don't picture it too vividly, but mob angrily just killing this guy. Okay, he's a really good guy. It says this, and Saul was there giving approval to his death. So you've got that scene happening here. Saul's like this. Yep, I like that. That's the kind of thing I'm into. Okay? That's not a great start. And uh, Luke goes on from there, and he makes it clear that when Saul went home that evening, he didn't think, a bit grisly though, let's, uh, let's keep that down. He thinks, hmm, that whole smashing Stephen's skull and stuff, I want more of it. Why stop with Stephen? Why not do it to all of them? And so Acts 8 verse 3, Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off, notice the words, it destroyed, dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Okay? And that's where we find him at the beginning of chapter 9. You see the kind of picture we're getting here. This is the Darth Vader. Okay? <laughs> this is the Coriolanus Snow. It's the Voldemort. The uh, Gaston. The Cruella de Vil. The Joker. You see? He's the baddie. Got it? Anyone with us? But there is an unexpected twist. Verse 3. Let's continue. As Saul neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Okay, what happens? Bit of a shift. Didn't see that coming, unless you've read it before, which most of us have. Um, (laughs) God intervenes, that's what happens. God intervenes out of the blue, massively abrupt intervention into his own story. Um, 
But to understand this a bit more, I think we need to get the full transcript, or we think the full transcript, of what that conversation was. Because actually, this is, in Acts 9, this is a paraphrase of the conversation. I guess we could call it a conversation between Jesus and Saul on the road to Damascus. And we know that because later on in Acts, Saul recounts this story again, but he includes something that isn't mentioned here that Jesus said. Okay, Because uh, in this bit where he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Jesus then added, Acts 26, 14, doesn't make it to Acts 9, but Jesus said it, uh, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. That's what Jesus said to Saul. And I think when we understand that, what Jesus is saying there, we see what's really happening here. And even more than that, we see how this story itself, this little story, is suddenly brought into the great big story. Okay? Now, I'll show you what I mean. There's two statements here, or a question and a statement. Let's start with the second one and work our way back. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. What does that mean? What did Jesus mean? First thing to get here is what are goads, okay? Goads are spiked sticks that are used, were used to direct cows in the way you wanted them to go, okay? Easy way to think of this. They were cattle prods before electricity was invented, okay? Got it? Sharp sticks, so you've got, <laughs> I am no cattle rancher. It might be strange for you to hear, uh, but I'd imagine you've got a big cow, and let's face it, cows are big. I mean, they're meant to be friendly animals. I'm don't like cows. They're huge. Scare me, okay? But you've got your cows wandering around. You've got cat ranch thinking, oh, you're going that way. I want you to go that way, okay? And how you do it, you get your spiked stick or your electric prod. Few of you, I imagine it must take more than one person, surely. Okay, you poke them. <laughs> this is I'm not a cattle rancher. Poke's the official term. And they then go into the gate. I'm imagining that's what happens anyway. Uh, you, do you get the idea? I think we can say that's probably what a goad was um, or a cattle prod in this case. This instantly sets what Paul's doing in a very different way to how we might have seen it before. Because you see, what Paul is doing and has been doing up to this point is not just he's been annoying God. It's not be like, God, I'm really fed up with this guy. He's really annoying me. No, no, what Paul's been doing is it's about a direction that Paul is traveling in. Paul's been traveling in completely the wrong direction. And actually, he's been doing things that have been stopping other things moving in that direction too. There is a direction here that's the problem. Suddenly what Jesus is doing here is he's thrusting Saul's life into the grand narrative of history. If you ask Saul a couple of months before, so why is it that you go around dragging off men and women into prison? I would imagine he would have answered you something like, well, you know what, I want to stop this pesky bunch of heretics. I want to snuff out this group of people. They're a right pain, okay? But that's not what was happening. Jesus makes it clear that Paul's persecution of the church wasn't just stamping out a bunch of heretics. It was actually a defiant attempt to resist the entire flow of all of history. Paul is resisting God's purposes. He is swimming against an unstoppable tide. <laughs> in, that, uh, in that relation, this statement is something of an understatement, surely. It is hard for you to kick against the codes. It's kind of tricky to swim against the tide of history, Paul. <laughs> it's, a, it's a massive understatement. We consider that the Bible makes patently clear that it's not hard at all. It's impossible to do it, or at least impossible to do it successfully. This is utterly futile to swim against God's purposes. You cannot fight God and win. Proverbs 21, 30. There's a few verses that will flash by. I mean, please soak them all in because this truth is so helpful for us. We need to remember this, but this is my favorite one. There is no wisdom, no insight, no plan. I don't know, add some more in. No resources, no riches, no governments, no monarchs, no institutions, no corporations 
that can succeed against the Lord. Very clear in Scripture. It's hard. It's kind of hard for you to kick against the goads, Jesus says. Go back to the first bit, though, because this adds a different layer to things. Jesus says this, a strange thing. Saul, why do you persecute me? Why do you persecute me? He doesn't say, why do you persecute my people or my friends or even my children? He doesn't say, why do you persecute the church? He asks why Paul has been systematically persecuting him. This isn't to be seen like... Uh, we're in a school gym, so I imagine this kind of thing may have happened in a room like this before. Like uh, the, the school bullies in the lunch queue or in the gym or whatever, I don't know, and suddenly finds himself picked up off the ground, like a year seven bully, let's say, picked up off the ground and goes, uh-oh, and he turns around and he sees the, the older brother, who's the captain of the rugby team, of the kid he's been bullying in year seven, <laughs> suddenly go, you pick on my brother, mate, you pick on me. You know, that's not what's happening in this story. He's not saying, ah, yeah, when you, you want a piece of him, well, try me now. No, he's saying, when you hurt them, you were hurting me. When you fought against them, you were fighting me. What's Jesus doing? Jesus is doing something remarkable. He's totally identifying himself with the church. As you can imagine, this uh, incident left a little bit of a mark on Paul's memory. Okay, we've seen that already. He talks about it a number of times uh, in the uh, New Testament. And I think this bit, he translates in a different way. So when Paul, Paul says exactly the same thing. When he talks about the church, he describes the church uh, in a very specific way. His key image for the church is the church is what? The church is the body of Jesus. It's the body of Christ. Paul's saying exactly the same thing from the other way. Well, what's the church? There is a sense in which the church is God in the story now. He's identified with his church. Now, when you put these two things together, what you see is this. If, if it's futile then to fight against God, and God chooses to identify himself with his people, I'll put this to the, to, to the crowd. What's the conclusion? What else is it futile to fight against? The church. It's futile then to fight against the church. Just as it is uh, futile to oppose God generally, it's equally pointless and counterproductive to oppose the advance of his people. Again, I've got some verses for you on that if you want to be stoked up by that incredible reality. Paul puts it most simply himself. If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, good question. Well, my brother doesn't like me very much now. My friends are a bit... No, no, it's not a... Question like that is a rhetorical question. Nobody can stand against us uh, fundamentally and successfully. I just want to drive this one home because I think we've got to feed off this stuff. And I think the best explanation of this reality in the Bible is strangely enough, and it's, this cannot be a coincidence, given in Acts by Paul's boss, who is also a baddie, okay? He strangely gives us this, the, I think the best quote in the Bible on this. A guy called Gamaliel, who mentored uh, Paul, and it was a bit of a big deal in first century Judaism. Okay? And it's in Acts 5, Luke recalls it, a uh, pretty standard theme here. You'll, you'll see this is one of the earlier cases. But all of the apostles have been arrested, and the council decide, look, best, there's only one way to go here, kill them all. Okay? Just get rid of them. The fact that they said kill them all probably suggests there's a Paul there somewhere because that seemed to be his general chorus. Okay? They said kill them all. This is what we do. This is how we get rid of this thing. And this guy Gamaliel, who they obviously listened to, um, he urges caution in the matter. And his argument's this. I think it will flash up behind, behind me, but I'll read it to you. It says, therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. 
For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. Like I said, I think Paul probably would have been there that day. He he would have been in and around the council. But clearly he paid no attention to Gamaliel and did the complete opposite. Okay? And I wonder if Jesus coming to the road to Damascus was like, you didn't listen to the Gamaliel, maybe, Paul, you'll listen to me. Because he tells him very straight. And what Jesus is saying on this road then is he's saying, Paul, all the time you've been fighting my church, you have been fighting me, and you have been fighting against the direction in which I am taking the whole of history. It is not a fight that you're going to win. That's what Jesus says to Paul on the road to Damascus. I hope that's encouraging for you. Is that an encouragement for us as Christians? Yes, it is. It's very encouraging. Good. Is it an encouragement? <laughs> y- yes, it is, okay? I can ask that question in the South, and they didn't, weren't very encouraged either. I, you know, I'll come back to my response to that later. But anyway, it's encouraging to us, and we need to soak in the encouragement. But in our bid to be encouraged, it doesn't mean we push some awkward questions then under the carpet. Because there are some awkward questions, and I would guess, well, I would hope, that they would be in some of your heads right about now, okay? Because the question for me would be on the back of all this sort of stuff, well, okay, fair enough, can't beat God, can't beat his church, okay, see all that stuff, how it links together, the Bible says it, but how come it does seem that people can fight against the church and win? How come? How come that happens quite a lot? Let's make it very practical. Let's give three examples, okay? Some of you may have heard of, some of you wouldn't have heard of, okay? How come... In Japan, in the 17th century, the Christian church was ruthlessly suppressed and completely crushed. And even today, it hasn't got itself back to where it was before that point. What happened there? How does that match in with all this stuff? What happened in in Egypt over Easter when ISIS militants blew up two churches, killing up at least 47 people? How does that fit in with all this? Let's bring it a bit closer to home, shall we? What's happening in our country, where for the last half century or so, church numbers have been shrinking, Christians on the whole are becoming more and more compromised in their faith, and uh, there's an increasing risk that believing things that are in the Bible now could get you in some serious legal trouble. I don't know about you, but with the Christians, I often kind of look at a verse like, it's hard to kick against the goads. And say to God, look, it doesn't seem very difficult to kick against the goads at the moment in England. In fact, it seems easier to kick against the goads than it is to put ourselves on your side, God. How does this work? And I, I'd uh, encourage you, with such questions are not the kind of questions we do push under the carpet and shy away from. So, no, no, God's in charge. I'm going to close my eyes and just hope the best. It's a bad idea. That will always come back to bite you. Got to hit those questions head on. They're genuine questions. They're difficult questions. For those in the midst of those questions, they're particularly important questions. And just to be absolutely clear to you here, if you are a Christian, uh, in our country, in our city, you are in the middle of those questions. Persecution is not something that's happening all around the world and that might land on us at some point. Might be, persecution might come to us in a certainly different form quite quickly. But actually, we've already been persecuted and have for years. And the, the thing about it is we haven't even noticed. Because the persecution we've had and we have now doesn't come with sticks and swords and guns and beheadings. It comes very subtly. It comes with leisure 
and comfort and greed. And it sinks in and seeps in. And it's insidious because what it does is exactly the same as the persecution around the world. It levers us away from our Savior, the most precious one to us. And all of us will be fighting that every moment of every day. We are in the middle of these questions. So how do we answer these questions? How do we balance the omnipotence of God with this present situation? Well, the first thing to say, I think, is that this is not a straightforward narrative, this great story. One day, I guess, uh, maybe when the story's done, we'll get a glimpse of how all the pieces fitted together. Why some things happened sometimes and other things happened at other times. Why God chose to step in here and he didn't choose to step in here. Why did God choose to save Peter from prison at one moment? We see that in Acts in a bit. But he didn't save Stephen. Or he didn't save James a few chapters later when he's martyred. We, we might get a look at that at the end of the story. We might not, but I'd like to think God would reveal some of that stuff. But on the ground now, in the nitty-gritty of the story, it is very difficult to give simple answers to questions like this. I'd urge you, as you come across questions like that, to take your eyes off the detail for a moment. The detail's very important, the questions are very important, but just to take a step back and have a look at the bigger picture. Because I think then we can understand the answer to those questions. That's right, just take your, take your mind out of where we are, some of the news items, and just think generally. Okay, where are we now as people? We're in 2017. Okay, it's uh, 2017 years, give or take, after Jesus was born. Kind of human strength and wisdom is at its absolute peak. We're really doing all right, humanly speaking, in many ways at the moment. We can make cool stuff. Science and technology is processing leap after leap, day after day. Reigning popular philosophies in many parts of the world would say, a God, outdated concept, we've evolved beyond him. I've been saying that for a few hundred years now. It's funny that. But anyway, that's, what, that's kind of where we are in the world, but we're in another place as well. We're in 2017, 2017 years, give or take, after Jesus was born. And as you look around the world, there are more Christians alive than has ever been the case before. Not just that, the percentage of the world that is Christian is higher than at any point in history before. And the trajectory shows absolutely no type, sign of abating. Soak that in for a moment. We don't think about that enough. That's staggering. When we zoom out and take in the whole story, it doesn't make the pain of persecution any less real, but I think it helps us to understand it. Because in all those examples I've given, okay, of, of those uh, terrorists in Egypt or the, the, what happened with the state in Japan or now the powers that be in our country, what are they doing? This is what they're doing. They're kicking against the goads. They're engaging their time, effort and resources into pointlessly swimming against an unbeatable tide. They are human beings fighting against God himself. All the questions in the short term, we know the perspective that matters here. Jesus said it very clearly. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And as Christians, we hold on to that by faith. There is a faith element to that, of course. But also, I think it's quite helpful to go, and actually, demographic statistics of the whole world as well. well let's just add that to our faith for a moment, because that's encouraging for us. That's how it played out. That's how it is playing out, just like Jesus said. And actually, in the story of Paul, then, we see this kind of main theme of the whole story compressed into one small set piece. So let's return to the story and see what happens next, because the story certainly is not over. Verse 7. 
Let's go from there. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, for when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias! Yes, Lord! He answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias. Ananias, that's you. Come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. Please don't do it, Lord. Please don't send me. My kind of extra in brackets. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name and all who knock on his door saying he's a Christian. My bit in brackets. Okay. Please don't send me, Lord. This is what I think Ananias is saying in his heart. Uh, but the Lord said to Ananias, Go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up. And was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. I said at the beginning, this is one of the biggies in history. And hopefully you can begin to see how that's going to play out. Because this is absolutely huge. (laughs) Paul becomes a Christian. Okay? He kind of turns away from murderous threats to following this Jesus. Okay? Um, And as Jesus says to him, you are my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles. Forget the kings and the people of Israel for a minute. Gentiles is non-Jews. Okay? And Paul goes on to spearhead the mission to those who are not Jewish. I don't think it's too much of an overstatement to say that without this happening, it is hard to imagine how this room of people could be happening today. Because there may be some of us who would be of Jewish descent, but I imagine not very many. And Paul was the guy who broke that whole thing open, which obviously exploded the whole of Christianity, among other things. For example, most of the New Testament. Okay? This is huge. This is massive. This passage, what's amazing about this passage that I love, is it doesn't just show us that God's pretty good at moving the story in his direction. It doesn't show us just that he's powerful. What else does it show us? It shows us he is incredibly gracious. It's incredibly merciful. This author of the story is not some control freak who just, oh, don't do my way, crash. He's a God of grace. If you're not a Christian today and you're here with us, you wouldn't call yourself that. You're a bit unsure. I don't know if I'm a Christian or not. You know what? I want to talk to you for a couple of minutes. So first of all, just say thank you for coming. I, I hope, uh, hope you feel free to participate or not as, as you feel, feel able to. You know, ask any questions you've got. It's a privilege having you here. Uh, but I want to talk to you for a second, if, if that's okay, um, because I recognize that you might be finding all of this a, a little bit foreboding. Because <laughs> my basic message so far um, has been that there's a God who is moving all history in a set direction, his direction. And if you resist that direction, his purposes or his will, that's not a great thing. I guess that would be a summary of what I think I've tried to communicate so far. And uh, some of you might well be asking, well, wait a minute, where on earth does that leave me then if I'm not a Christian? Now, I recognize, I, I hope this is the case anyway, that it's, it's unlikely uh, there are many of you here who've come actively to destroy the church this morning. If you have, 
slightly awkward. Please don't. That'd be helpful. But I imagine I'm not speaking to many of you uh, in that case. But the Bible would paint things pretty much like if you're not actively building God's church, well, in a very real sense, you, like Paul, pre-conversion, are kicking against the goads. There is a sense in which you too are resisting the flow of, of history. But you see, you've got to know this at the same time. that In this story, the author is not some ruthless dictator who crushes all opposition with an iron fist. Okay, No. He's a God of grace, mercy, and forgiveness, and second chances. Because let's face it, if anyone was in line for a good old smiting, it would have been Saul, wouldn't it? Okay, if anyone in history, okay, you've got Jesus there, he has been persecuted by Saul. He's knocked him off his horse. I imagine Saul on the road to Damascus, a bit like a blind beetle, okay, on his back. Ah, I can't do anything, completely helpless. Now, Jesus is like, they're like this, great, fantastic, I've been waiting for this moment. You're expecting lightning bolts, you're expecting shoes with smoke coming out of them, smiting ahoy, let's go, okay. What happens? Does he do that? No, not at all. He forgives him completely he doesn't even mention it kind of all that stuff's gone and not only that he gives him this new life you know what if if you're kicking against the goads at the moment I'm sure you're you might have a feeling of this of like you know what there is this sense I'm coming up against this immovable object in my life I'm trying all these things and it's just I'm kicking against something it's hard that's not a way to live well, Jesus does Paul say, you know what? You don't have to futilely fight against the one who represents the good of the universe. Okay, you don't have to do that anymore, Paul. Now you can serve me. You can be loved by God. You can know God as your father. And you know what? If you're not a Christian here today, uh, you can know that grace too, even today. Will becoming a Christian be easy? Well, in a sense, very much no. It won't be easy. I don't want to beat around the bush or push something that's not the case. No, it'd be hard. It, becoming a Christian means an entire change of direction of your life. This direction idea is important. You, you'll have to turn away from a load of things that at the moment you really like, that you really cherish, that you really treasure. Okay? You'll have to give up dreams and ambitions that you hold very dear. At least to put them on the table and say, God, this could be, this couldn't be, it's yours, not mine. So in a sense, no, it's not that easy. But in another sense, I'd say it's much easier than what you're doing right now. Kicking against the goads, swimming against the tide. Because to give in to God is simply to say, really, okay, God, you win. And actually, that's liberation. That's freedom. And living that direction takes you in a much better destination to it, a much better destination as well. Please, if that's for you, please come and talk to someone at the end. I'm going to be running off to go to another meeting in a few minutes to to do the talk there, but I'm sure Mark and the others would love to talk to you uh, about that sort of stuff and pray with you. But let's wrap it up and let's bring everyone back into the conversation with one final question before we finish. And uh, that's this, which is, with all this talk of going with the current or going with the flow of history or falling in line with the big story, it could seem very, very passive for us. And so your question may be, okay then, well, what part could I possibly play in a story that is being written independently of me? Is our role simply to float along in the tide, to sit in the audience admiring what God's doing? Well, actually, this whole passage, which we're going to finish in a second, shows us that while we cannot affect the story's ultimate synopsis, okay, the big framework of the story, we can't affect the ultimate synopsis of the story, but we can affect the plot. 
And let's just see that. Let's go to the end of the, the passage. Let's go to from verse 19. So what happens next? Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. I don't really blame them. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him. And how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, that's the Greek Jews, uh, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. And the church throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, he increased in numbers. Before this kind of end of this passage, I guess you say, who's the key player? Who's the one doing stuff here? The answer would be God, okay? Breaks into the story, knocks Saul off his horse, tells Ananias, go here, tells Saul, go here. God's being very proactive. But it's got to be noted that even in this story, which is one of the most abrupt interventions into the story that the author makes in the whole Bible, okay, even here... It's not like humans are passive observers in the thing. No, God's acting to bring the story forward, and humans are acting to bring the story forward. We've already seen it in the story in Ananias' obedience. Ananias would not have wanted to go and do that job, but he obeyed. He went. Okay? We see it in this passage, bit of the passage here, with their kind of ingenuity, with this basket trick. He's, I want to call Paul, hmm, let's get a basket, let's lower him out of the walls. That's, they're involved, they come up with their ideas, their plans, their strategies, they use their skills in that regard. I want to end simply by uh, mentioning uh, something that I want to kind of summarize everything I've said really, uh, but one other thing that they did to work with God uh, in moving forward the story here, and it's actually something they didn't do really, they, they didn't give in to fear. That was one of the main parts they played here. We see in verse 26 in a specific situation. When Saul came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. They were afraid. There's a fear there. And actually Barnabas talks around and they give up that fear, which is crucial because if the church had shunned Paul at this point, it is hard to see how he could have had the impact that he went on to have that's so important for the continuation of the story. However, it's got to be noted, this is not the first time they would have been battling with fear in this whole episode. To close, to finish, let's go back to the beginning of our passage and let's just zoom slightly differently to a different place. Okay, so let's do it. Let's imagine Damascus Road. Okay, you can imagine it on TV. It's Damascus Road. At the time it's in, Beetle Man on his back here, Jesus here. Okay, freeze frame. Have you got that? Got it? Got it. Talk to me. Yeah, good. Google Maps it, up into space, got it? Let's move about hmm, a couple of hundred miles one way or another. Don't know my geography, but anyway, Jerusalem at the exact same moment. Okay, over there, Damascus, the course of the whole of history is changing in God's favor by one of the most amazing things to ever happen. Over here, what is the experience at that exact moment of the Jerusalem Christians? This is what it would be. Stephen has just been killed. 
The entire church has been scattered, which means disbanded, no church anymore. Most of the leaders have had to flee. And if you're still in Jerusalem, you're either in prison or in hiding, separated from your loved ones and children, probably. Okay? Slightly different experience. I would imagine that despite all the amazing stuff those Christians would have seen, for those Christians at that moment in Jerusalem, they would have had some pretty big questions on their mind. What on earth is happening? What's going on? Was this Jesus another pretender after all? Because if he's real, where was he when Stephen was dying? Where was he when my husband was dragged to prison? Where was he when my kids were taken off me? You know what? Those would have been very real questions. And behind those very real questions, I think there would have been a very real fear. I think we could summarize the fear like this. I think what they would have been afraid of was there's no story. There's no order. There is no God in charge of things. There's no one on the throne. Maybe that scientist was right. Maybe human life is just a hiccup from one oblivion to another oblivion. Maybe this is chaos. Maybe this is all just an accident. There's no order. That's the fear they would have had. And I'd imagine that that fear grips many of us too today in almost exactly the same way. You're looking around and you're asking, why is it so tough? Why, where's God in all this? Why, why don't I see him answer my prayers as I expect? Why, why as a church is it so hard to get anywhere? If you get forward last week, you'll know we, we've got some challenges as a church at the moment. Why? Why? Why can't we just go? We're going with the flow of God here. How is it so tough if he's really in charge? But in this story, the challenge for the church, the first part they had to play in this was not to give in to fear. In the specific instance of Paul, is he a believer or not, Barnabas helped them. I'm no Barnabas, but I'd love to do a similar thing for you this morning if you're, you're in that sort of place. Because if you ask those sort of questions, I'm, I'm definitely not having a go at you. Because I'll be honest with you, I, I ask those questions all the time. Yeah, all the time. And I'd say about two weeks ago, I was asking them with a new wave <laughs> of those questions. For one reason or another, I was like, God, where are you? Come on, we're doing a lot here. It seems like this is more tougher than it needs to be, Lord. And I was in that sort of mood when I kind of went to, right, what's, what am I preaching on next week? Okay, let's look at the list. Please don't be Ananias and fire again, please. Okay, go down again. Oh, Acts 9, what's that? Ah, okay. And I'll be honest with you, I found this passage and, and find this passage really, really encouraging. And I'd like to pass a little bit on to you of that as we finish. And I hope I have already. Because you see, this passage reminds us that our perspective on things is not always the correct one. When we're looking at things in Jerusalem, there could be a whole load of stuff going on in Damascus. It reminds us that God's purposes will triumph even when our experience tells us they don't really seem to be triumphing at the moment, in my experience, around me. Actually, this passage throws up an entirely different question to me. I want to sow it like a seed in your mind and see what happens to it. Is And the question is this. What kind of Damascus Road stuff is God up to now without us knowing about it? Hmm. The cog's turning. Go on, put that one in, see what happens. What's behind the scenes? What, what cloak and dagger stuff is God doing right now to hoodwink his enemies that we don't know about? This very morning, 
somewhere in this country or on planet Earth, what things are happening that God is orchestrating that none of us will find out about for years and years, maybe never will, but there will be those Damascus Road things. The things that actually are ensuring not just that the church survives and holds on. Please, can we just hold on till heaven? Now that the seed, that little seed, grows and grows and grows and grows and grows and grows till it's the largest tree in the whole garden. It's Jesus' promise. Put that seed in your mind. Be encouraged. Don't give in to fear. Keep trusting Jesus. Our lives are part of a story. It's not a story we've written, but it's been written. It is being written, and it will be written in the future. The story's author is perfectly in control of the narrative, and he is perfectly skilled in bringing it to its intended conclusion.